The time is now six o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, February 12th, 2024. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. In tonight's news. Last Saturday, Wisconsin labor and community organizations hosted a rally to challenge the rise of white supremacist activity. Also Saturday, Madison celebrated Korean American Day and the Lunar New Year. The number of licensed school bus drivers is on the decline in Wisconsin. And in the second half of the show, the government's calendar for this week, the story behind one of the largest sit-down strikes in U.S. history, and two movie reviews. This is Sam Swartz and Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are your headlines tonight. The Wisconsin Election Commission issued a new guidance on Thursday that instructs election clerks in the state to accept absentee ballots with partial addresses for the witnesses. The guidance is a response to a court order issued in January instructing the commission to accept absentee ballots with partial addresses. That's because the current statute is unclear as to how stringent the requirements should be, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Republicans in the legislature have introduced a bill that would increase the requirements for absentee ballots before they could be accepted by an election clerk. But Governor Evers has vetoed past attempts to make absentee voting more difficult. A nonpartisan review of absentee ballots in the 2020 election found that about 1,000 absentee ballots had witness sections that were missing part of their addresses. That accounts for about 7% of all absentee ballots in the state. The Wisconsin Election Commission voted unanimously on Thursday to allow for the Green Party presidential candidate to appear on the ballot in the election this November, reports the Wisconsin, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The Green Party did not appear on the Wisconsin ballot back in 2020, but did appear all the way back in 2016 when nominee Jill Stein received more than 31,000 votes. That was greater than the margin of victory for President Trump, who won the state by less than 23,000 votes. It is unclear who the Green Party will nominate as their possible presidential candidate, but Jill Stein is planning on touring the state with stops at Racine, Milwaukee, and Madison. The Wisconsin Supreme Court accepted responses last Thursday to a report from the redistricting consultants. Those consultants found that the legislative maps proposed by the Republican-controlled state legislature were were partisan gerrymanders likely to violate the state's constitution. Both Democrat and Republican legislators responded to the call, with Republicans urging the court to reject the consultants' findings. Meanwhile, Democrats asked the court to accept one of the alternate legislative maps that the consultants determined were not partisan gerrymanders. The court is likely to hand down a decision on the maps in the next few weeks, with a deadline of March 15th before the maps need to be filed, reports the Associated Press. Meanwhile, the legislator is considering passing maps proposed by Governor Evers, and he rejected maps that were modified to defend incumbent Republican politicians. There is also some indication that state Republicans and the conservative Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty may pursue taking their case to the U.S. Supreme Court if the Wisconsin Supreme Court does not hand down a ruling favorable to them. United States Representative Mike Gallagher of Green Bay announced on Saturday that he would not seek re-election this November, opening up the district for other potential candidates. Gallagher cast a contentious vote last week when he was one of three Republicans to vote against impeaching Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas. 
The vote angered his fellow Republicans, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Gallagher represents Wisconsin's 8th Congressional District, a solidly Republican district that Trump won by more than 16 points in 2020. Following Gallagher's retirement announcement, former state Senator Roger Roth announced his candidacy for the district while simultaneously offering his endorsement of Donald Trump. Healthcare workers at Planned Parenthood clinics in Wisconsin voted to unionize in a union election tallied last Thursday, reports the Capital Times. The workers voted to join the Wisconsin Federation of Nurses and Health Professionals in a vote of 56 to 13. Planned Parenthood clinics have been unionizing across the country, with an increased push following the 2022 Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. Workers cite the political pressure and the intense scrutiny of their work as part of the reason they voted to unionize. A person died in police custody earlier this morning in Shellsburg, Wisconsin, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. According to a statement from the Department of Justice, two Lafayette County deputies and a Darlington police officer made contact with a person wandering the streets of Shellsburg earlier this morning. The person allegedly resisted arrest, resulting in their subsequent death at a local hospital after emergency medical services were called. The involved police officers have been placed on paid leave. They were wearing body cameras during the incident, but footage of the incident, as well as the official cause of death, have not yet been released. University of Wisconsin-Madison has announced plans to build a visitor and education center at the Lakeshore Nature Preserve near Picnic Point on Lake Mendota, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The new building would support research in the nature preserve, as well as provide support services for the nearly 150,000 yearly visitors to the park. The project is expected to cost the university nearly $17 million, but Jerry Frouchy has given more than $14 million to the project, which will bear his family's name. Construction is expected to begin in 2025, with a projected completion date in 2026. The chief of the University of Wisconsin-Madison Police Department resigned earlier today, reports Channel 3000 News. Chief Kristen Roman has served as police chief since 2017. No No reason was provided for her resignation. Brent Plish has been appointed as interim chief. The university says it will begin a nationwide search for a new chief with more details forthcoming. Those were the headlines, and now on to the day, the rest of today's top stories. On Saturday, a coalition of, coalition of leftist, labor, and advocacy groups gathered on the Library Mall as counteraction to recent instances of hate in Madison. There, they linked the call against hate with many other causes. WORT News Director Sholly Pittman was there. Look to your left, look to your right. Only the power of the people are going to save us. About a hundred gathered on Library Mall last Saturday to march up to the Capitol, then back down State Street. The action, titled Stop the Hate, Build People's Unity, was put on by a coalition of leftists, labor, and advocacy groups. They were there as a challenge to the presence of neo-Nazis in Madison last November. That's when members of the neo-Nazi group The Blood Tribe surprised Madisonians by marching through downtown, dressed in orange garb and carrying swastika flags, many identities obscured by sunglasses and balaclavas. The Blood Tribe has disrupted other communities in Wisconsin. Last month, they projected a swastika into a dorm building at UW-Whitewater. Last summer, they showed up at a pride rally in Watertown. Some signs at Saturday's countermarch read, Stop the Hate, and Bigotry Hurts All Working People. 
Other signs held anti-war and pro-Palestinian messages, and speakers took the opportunity to link the action against neo-Nazis and the rising threat of fascism at home with other causes. Free one issue some organizers chose to highlight, the fight against a 40 to $50 million police training center in Fitchburg, which those against term Cop City Fitchburg. Just now, the city of Fitchburg is trying to secure a $50 million facility for their cops. You guys know what my speech is already. For a municipality of barely 30,000 people, this makes zero sense. That's after a wave of public information meetings about the police training facility, and just as the proposal is set to head to the Fitchburg City Council tomorrow. Other speakers at Saturday's march linked the fight against fascism to other causes and reproductive rights, labor, LGBTQ rights, and the rights for immigrants and the undocumented. But the most prominent issue on Saturday? The ongoing genocide against Palestinians and the lack of leadership from U.S. politicians. Mohammed Hamad is a Milwaukee resident from Gaza. He was at the action on Saturday, carrying pins and images of his family, some of whom were killed this fall by Israeli airstrikes. And you're carrying a, um, a banner of several folks, and you have um, buttons yeah. on your coat. Can you describe them? These just, uh, you know, um, family member who who died, you know, during this war. Uh, you know, just we, we have three. Uh, I lost around maybe 20 of my family so far, uh, you know, from cousins and extended family. And uh, this is, uh, these are three uh, individuals, you know, one of them 13 years old, is full of life, a very funny and a smiley person. Lovely to be around, you know, and to, to see him. The second one, you know, in this picture, you know, just my sister, which is which is a, a teacher, a specialist, uh, and um, um, uh, <coughs> a speech therapist dealing with the kids, you know, with those they have trauma, uh, especially after wars. And uh, she worked all of her life, you know, around 35 years, you know, helping you know, the kids in Gaza after they go through trauma. They killed her, you know, while she was shopping uh, to outdoor, you know, uh, market. Uh, they bombed you know, the market and uh, 56 people died and she's one of them. Even you know, my brothers and my nephews, they told me they couldn't identify the body, except from her birth. Um, uh, the third one, uh, this is my cousin Hidayah, and she is uh, the director of uh, youth training in the Red Crescent. And uh, she was trying in Khanyunis to help an injured person outside the headquarters, and the sniper uh, shot her and killed her. Um, uh, you know, and she has been killed with the other two of the first responders. You know, with her also have been killed. Hamad says we're complicit, but that his representatives aren't listening. So this is a, a catastrophe. Uh, this is this is a, a life of uh, individual human being, those they have dreams and they have uh, stories, they, they're full of life. And we, we feel we are responsible, you know, to stop this war and to stop this, you know, the genocide that's happening in people in Gaza. We are trying, you know, our best here, 
just calling our representative from Congress and Senate and White House and keeping, you know, messages for them. None of them, you know, they are willing, you know, to meet with us. And I think, you know, we are talking with deaf people, you know, they are, they are not, they are, they are not hearing our voices here. And I believe, you know, as a community here, in November we remember. In November we remember these uh, representatives that they did not hear us, you know. There is election, and as a community, in November, we never Sabine Walter is a member of the Milwaukee Anti-War Committee and pointed out other Wisconsin ties, like Milwaukee-based company Astronautics, which organizers say develops key components for IDF bombs dropped in Gaza. They manufacture parts for helicopters used by police forces across the country, navigation equipment for the aircraft used to bomb Yemen, and parts for the guidance system of the spice bombs being dropped in Gaza. Saturday's action was organized by the People's Unity Coalition and Wisconsin Bailout the People. Over and over, organized joint calls against hate and genocide and for labor and for rights. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Sholly Pittman. On Saturday, a Korean American Day celebration was combined with a celebration of the Lunar New Year after the former was postponed due to weather in January. Among other guests, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes Conway was there to officially proclaim Korean American Day in Madison. Reporter Jess Miller spoke to some of the folks involved with the celebration about what the proclamation and the community mean to them. The community center in the Eagle Heights neighborhood played host to a celebration of Korean-American history and culture on Saturday in honor of the first-ever Madison Korean-American Day. The event was put on by Amazian, a group that fosters connections and success in the local Asian-American community, which local realtor Laura Lottie founded last year. So we have a variety of food and different performances from Taekwondo to singing along with dance. The event was originally scheduled for January 13th, the nationally recognized Korean American Day in the United States. But cold weather and poor road conditions caused it to be postponed to coincide with the Lunar New Year. State Representative Francesca Hong grew up in the Eagle Heights neighborhood and spoke about the changes she's seen in the Asian American community in Madison. Since I've grown up, now we are seeing more younger families, biracial families, mixed families um, make Madison home. But not all of the amazing Korean people I was meeting knew one another. So I thought this would be a great way to get to know more of the community, celebrate one another's diversity, and also, of course, come together for beautiful music and food. And I have to say that over the last couple of years, finding community amongst folks who are so proud to be who they are, people who are so proud to include Korean Americans, however you identify as Korean, whether you're an immigrant, an adoptee, um, first, second, however many generations, I think it's our diversity and this pride, the different levels and layers of pride that we feel in our community that makes us so much stronger. Um, it has been, honestly, I don't know if I've ever been in a room with this many Koreans in Madison, so that's also very cool. Many of the attendees wore brightly colored traditional Korean clothing called hanboks. Along with crafts and games, Korean art and history exhibits, and plenty of Korean food, they were treated to performances of interpretive dance and songs from soloists and the recently formed Wisconsin Korean Choir. Also among the performers were the Mo family. Mike Mo is the founder of Level Up Martial Arts School in Wanakee, but you may also know him from his acting career. He portrayed Bruce Lee in Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. 
At Saturday's event, though, Mo's three children, all students under their father, stole the show with their Taekwondo demonstration. Um, there are 12, 11, and 8, Chase, Maya, and Tyson, and they did a great job. Uh, I got to go up there and show off some board breaks, and it was a lot of fun. At the end of the event, Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway presented Korean-American chef Tori Miller with a proclamation for Korean-American Day in Madison. Whereas, there are over 1.9 million people of Korean ancestry living in the United States today, and over 2,500 residing in the city of Madison. Whereas, Korean-Americans have made significant contributions to Wisconsin, in many fields, including business, government, education, healthcare, arts, and culture, making their mark as entrepreneurs, professionals, educators, and community leaders. Now, therefore, be it resolved that I, Satya Roots Conway, Mayor of Madison, Wisconsin, do hereby proclaim Korean American Day in the city of Madison. For WORT News, I'm Jess Miller. The number of licensed school bus drivers in Wisconsin is on the decline, and the remaining license holders are aging. That's according to a recent report from Wisconsin Policy Forum, a nonpartisan research organization. Tyler Burns authored the report, and he shared some insight with WORT news producer Faye Parks earlier today. Thank you for joining me, Tyler. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate your uh, interest in this subject. So to start, can you walk us through your findings? Just how dramatic is this decline in school bus drivers? So in school bus drivers specifically, we've seen about 3,000 fewer licensed school bus drivers from you know, 2007 to 2022, which is about 17.7%. So that's a pretty substantial decline. And then we also looked at passenger bus drivers. So that's folks that have a license to drive a bus that carries 16 or more people, but isn't a school bus. So that's you know mostly transit buses. Uh, and they've declined by an even larger total number, which is you know the nearly 5,000 drop and that's almost 20% of total licensed passenger bus drivers. So that was kind of the big number one finding. So then we kind of tried to say, okay, so the total number has dropped. How does that compare to the demands put on the people with these licenses? And so what we did to look at school bus drivers is just took, what's the total number of enrolled students today versus what was the total number of enrolled students in 2007? And how does the ratio between total enrolled students in public and private schools compared to the number of licensed school bus drivers. And there we saw that ratio go up substantially. Uh, So in 2007, that was about 59.5 students enrolled in schools across the state per licensed school bus driver. And now we're seeing 68.5 students per school bus driver. Now, one little caveat on that number is like, that's not, you know, how many students are on each bus or, you know, how many students each bus driver is responsible for, anything like that. We just wanted to sort of capture the universe of students who might need to ride a bus. So we took public and private students and then divided it by people who are qualified to drive a school bus. And so that was these school bus licensees. And, you know, there may be cases where you hold a school bus license, but you're not actually driving a school bus. Maybe you've retired, but the license is still valid, or maybe you're driving some other type of large vehicle. And so 
One of the things that we found was that you know demand for school bus drivers has been relatively flat, and the number of drivers has gone down substantially, and that's what we think is causing you know the acute shortage in school bus drivers that we're you know reading newspapers articles about. Or you know I have a seventh grader in Madison Public Schools, and early in the year, especially his bus was often late and unpredictable. And so you know it's it's definitely something that we're seeing around the state is this acute shortage of drivers. On the sort of transit driver side, we didn't see, you know, a similar sort of consistent trend where, you know, demand for services was going up or staying flat while the drivers were going down or anything like that. We didn't really see a trend one way or the other. And that fits with what we're hearing from transit services, which is, you know, sometimes it can be a little difficult to hire enough drivers, but they've been able to do things to make sure that they're always able to run the routes they need to run. Uh, They haven't been missing service, hasn't been late buses, that sort of thing. And then finally, you know, both of these groups are getting older. Licensed school bus drivers are, on average, three years older than they were in 2007. Uh, And again, with folks that just hold a passenger bus license, they're more than five years older. And in both groups, more than 20% are are 65 or older. And so, you know, that speaks to the potential for this problem, you know, getting worse in the near future as opposed to getting better. When it comes to this decline in the number of licensed school bus drivers and then their their rising average age, can you point to any mm-hmm. potential causes? We kind of looked into that and we thought, well, has there been you know a big federal policy change in terms of who can drive a, a school bus? You know, is there a change in the training requirements, anything like that? And it, it we haven't really seen any real clear cause. You know, I know that overall the, the population is aging. People are leaving the workforce for retirement, which, you know, makes sense. And, and this is an industry that even in 2007, it was a relatively older group of people. And so, you know, as that group has aged, they've retired and they've dropped out of the workforce and there hasn't been people jumping in to, to fill that. And there could be a number of factors for that. You know, it's a, it's a tough job. The hours are maybe not the easiest to fill. And so, you know, as people have dropped out of the workforce or out of the you know, driving pool, um, people haven't jumped back in. And one of the other interesting things about, you know, having a school bus driver license is you could drive a passenger bus and you could also drive any other type of truck that requires a commercial driver's license. And so, you know, you have this credential, it's a very valuable credential. And so, you know, if there's demand for truck drivers, transit drivers, you know, maybe you can go and get a better job driving truck for a, you know, a freight hauling company, something like that. Perhaps, you know, people have said, well, I got all this training. I have this really valuable skill. I'm going to go get a job doing something else. And so that could be part of the cause as well. So you mentioned earlier that Madison has seen some pretty extreme delays um, with some Mm -hmm. students earlier this year having to walk home after the school day had ended. What Mm -hmm. are some other consequences of the bus driver shortage? So, you know, those are kind of the acute consequences, and, and that can be really disruptive, you know, to both the student attending school, if the bus is going to be late or if it's unpredictable, that may lead to increased absenteeism, which then has negative consequences in terms of educational attainment down the line, or, you know, it can make it more difficult for the parents themselves to get to work. And we've been seeing workforce shortages, you know, around the state and making it tougher for parents to get to work kind of exacerbates those workforce shortages. And so while it's not, you know, the driving factor behind absenteeism or, you know, workforce shortage, it can definitely contribute on the margins, um, just making it harder, less predictable for, for kids to get to school and for parents to get the kids to school and then get to work themselves. What kind of solutions have school districts proposed? And is the state working on anything to address the shortage? 
So there's a couple of things that school districts have done. You know, there's been some attempts to uh, work together with transit systems in the area. I know Green Bay has done something like that. I know Madison kind of shares a little bit of the load of transporting students between the school buses and the and the Madison Transit Service. One interesting thing I saw just today was the Kettle Moraine School District. They now have an app that will show you where, using GPS data, it will show you where your kid is, how far away from home they are, when they're going to arrive, which is really helpful in you know parents planning to make sure to be home to meet the bus, that sort of thing. And they could also use that data to optimize routes and make sure that you know, they're getting to all the kids out there in the most efficient manner possible, you know, using their limited number of drivers and limited number of buses. And so, you know, there may be some technological solutions there that, you know, don't involve shifting to AI-driven buses uh, or anything like that, but just optimizing how the limited resources are used. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Tyler. Yeah, we're glad you're interested in our work. That was Tyler Burns, a researcher with the Wisconsin Policy Forum. He recently published a report on school bus drivers in the state, finding that their numbers have declined by nearly one-fifth over the last 15 years. Tyler says that licensed bus drivers may be migrating to more lucrative careers. And while the shortage continues and delays become more common, some school districts are looking for ways to communicate more effectively with parents. This is Sam Swartz and Rachel Fields coming to you live from the WORT studios for your nightly news. It's Monday night. Do you know where your government is and what they're doing? It's time now for a forward lookout. WORT news producer Faye Parks is filling in for Dylan Brogan and has the latest from Brenda Conkle. It's Monday, and we're talking to Brenda Conkle about what's happening this week in local government. Me being we, Faye Parks. I'm filling in for our usual contributor, Dylan Brogan, who was unavailable this afternoon. Hi, Brenda. Thank you for being so flexible today. Oh, no problem. Thanks, Faye. So jumping right in with the county, there were already a couple of meetings this afternoon, primarily focused on health and aging. So there was the medical advisory subcommittee, which met at noon, and the aging and disability resource board met at 3.30. Anything of note in their agendas? The Aging and Disability Resource Center got an overview of the housing access and affordability program at the county. So it probably was very educational for them to learn about problems within housing and homelessness issues. And as for the city of Madison, the Landmarks Commission is meeting tonight at 5 p.m. And they have a couple of things on the agenda. So I'm seeing the honorary street name program, the commission's annual report, and then a land division in University Heights, which has been getting a lot of buzz on the local listserv there. So any thoughts on those items? You know, I think all of it has been getting a little bit of buzz, the honorary street naming program. Um, It's interesting. It didn't look like it was formally referred to the Landmarks Commission, but they may just be commenting on it. So it'll be interesting to see how they handle that. Also tonight, but at 530, the Madison Arts Commission is having a virtual meeting. So is there anything in their docket that you'll be keeping an eye on? Um, Yeah, they're going to be looking at the public art feature for the Imagination Center out at Randall Park. So they'll be looking at what they're going to be doing there. They also are looking at the Lake Monona Waterfront Master Plan, as well as the Municipal Building Art Plan. And then there's also another project on State Street for the Pedestrian Mall Experiment. It's a project called Flock to State Street Painting. 
Mm, okay, so they'll be sort of just uh, reviewing the plans as they are yes. so far. Okay, yes. very cool. And then moving on to tomorrow, uh, the county's Equal Opportunity Commission is meeting at 5.30. So is there anything folks should be keeping an eye on? Mostly their agenda is just reports. It looks like Henry by the Zoo representatives are supposed to show up and there's a note saying they will be unable to attend. So it looks like their main main focus of their meeting has, has sort of been canceled. So probably be a quick meeting with just some reports. I see. Okay, interesting, especially with, you know, how often on the, the zoo has been in the news recently. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then also tomorrow, but at 6.30, Madison's Common Council has a pretty packed schedule. So I noticed the city may vote to accept county funds to support the Dairy Drive Urban Campground. Any thoughts on that or anything else going on in that meeting? Yeah, that was all settled during the budget. So this is sort of a more of a formality at this point. They had put that money in the budget for this year. And this is just the contractual agreements to, to transfer the money. They also will be saying goodbye to Greg Mickles, who's been the public library director for quite some time. They're going to be getting an overview of the 2025 budget and what the outlook is for that. Usually it's very scary and there's usually lots of bad news for, for council members. And I think with the COVID funds going away, it'll be particularly bad. It usually ends up by the end of the year, they figured out all kinds of things to try to mitigate some of the problems that they have with their budget, but I'm sure it's not going to be a very pretty outlook for them. And then they have typical things on their agenda, like liquor licenses of a couple planning items. And then they are also going to be looking at the polling places for 2024 spring elections. Mm, Okay, that's a big one. So uh, is there any controversy around that? Any disagreement on where they should be? Not that I'm aware of, but um, elders may come up with something as they review it for their districts. Usually these things get worked out in advance, but you never know. (laughs) Absolutely. And so then moving on to Wednesday, no county meetings that I could see, but I do see that the Urban Design Commission plans to discuss the men's shelter on Bartolon Drive. What exactly is that going to look like and where are they at in the approval process there? The fact that it's going to urban design, they're getting into the process. Um, Usually urban design makes a recommendation to the plan commission. So they have been moving along. I think the numbers at the shelter, there's been over 350 people on some nights or about 350 people on some nights. And they're planning a shelter for about 250 folks. So I think it's starting to make some folks very nervous about if they're going to have a big enough shelter for the future, given some of the, again, COVID funds going away and just our housing stock here in Madison. And then they have one other project out on Midvale Boulevard and Seagull Road. We didn't mention on, it looks like on Wednesday, there's the Public Safety Review Committee meeting at 5 p.m. See, they're getting reports, it looks like. Anything else interesting going on with that? They've been working for a while on what should they work on. They've been having an identity crisis because there is the oversight board as well as the um, basically the personnel committee and the police and fire commission. And then there's the public safety review committee. And so they've been sort of trying to figure out who plays what role and then who does what. So they are continuing their discussion on what their purpose is, looking at their mission and their charge and trying to figure out what they want to work on probably for the next year or two. And this is an interesting item. They are asking for some cost reimbursement agreement for the ATF, which is alcohol, tobacco and firearms for overtime costs associated with preventing gun violence. So that's an interesting funding source. And so on Thursday, the county board's executive committee has a packed schedule for their five o'clock meeting. I see resolutions to condemn anti-Semitism and Islamophobia here in the county and across the country. 
and then a resolution to join the Wisconsin Local Government Climate Coalition, among other agenda items. Uh, what are your thoughts on those? They'll also be uh, looking for calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, and they are also going to be looking at changes to Chapter 7 of the county board rules. Those are the rules that uh, govern things like basically the rules of order. So when can people speak? When can people not speak? How long can they speak for? Those types of things. So that may be of interest. But those items, the anti-Semitism, ceasefire in Gaza, Islamophobia resolution, as well as the Climate Coalition meetings are also on the county board that evening at 7 o'clock. A couple other things on on that county board agenda that may be of interest. Um, there's some funding for the food pantries and then the master plan for Indian Lake County Park is going to also be up. A lot of that will be repeated again just a couple hours later. <laughs> and I did notice too, this comes probably uh, the, the items we discussed about the ceasefire and about condemning Islamophobia and anti-Semitism, that kind of thing. That was stuff that already came up in the, uh, in the Common Council. Um, so is that kind of general procedure? Usually one and then the other will follow. Um, Yeah, with these types of resolutions, sometimes there's some pushback about we can't really do anything locally, but then there's other people who are calling for the city council to at least make a statement about it or calling for the county board to make a statement about it. And so the prevailing thoughts about it sort of shifts back and forth a little bit. But my guess is here that the county board saw the city council do it and then was interested in doing the same. And then uh, the Zoning Board of Appeals uh, virtual meeting. Did you want to tell me a little bit more about that? It's interesting. Um, so there's one project at 4621 Ditch Mill Road, which is sort of standard things that you would see on the agenda. But then I haven't seen this before where two alders are requesting an appeal of the zoning administrator's determination about the timeliness of an appeal. And so Alder Rummel and Alder Isidore Knox are looking to convince the zoning administrator to give somebody uh, more time to appeal. And I've, I've never seen that before. It's, it's kind of an interesting agenda item. I'm gonna be interested and see what they do with that because we do have a new zoning administrator since uh, Matt Tucker is now the building inspector. So like sort of a, a change of the guard thing is going on. There's some shuffling around, sounds like. I, Yeah, I think this might be something where maybe the old uh, zoning administrator did things differently. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and there's some pushback. I see. Yeah. Interesting. Moving on to Friday, uh, the county's Arts and Cultural Affairs Commission is meeting at 830 in the morning. uh, So bright and early for them. And then discussing some of their major priorities for 2024. So anything you noticed in that? What, What kind of stuff is ahead? Yeah, so they'll be really looking at their priorities and and deciding what they're going to be focusing on over the next year. And then they're also going to be looking at their budget for 2024 and what kind of grants they'll be able to do. So really focusing on their priorities and and where they're going to put their efforts this year. And also on Friday at 8.30 a.m. is a possible quorum of the Housing Strategy Committee at the Madison Municipal Building. So it looks like there's a subcommittee on homeownership, models of homeownership transfer structures. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so the um, Housing Strategy Committee has been working really hard to look at home ownership, uh, particularly when it comes to people of color. That's really how wealth transfers from generation to generation. So they are looking at various different models of how they can get more people of color into home ownership. And I think they're doing some really good work there. I haven't tuned into many of their meetings lately, but I, I think that if you're interested in that, I think it would be a good meeting to attend if you're up at 830 in the morning. <laughs> Me personally, I'm not sure. <laughs> Brenda Conkle, everybody, Uh, if you want to see this week's meeting agendas for Dane County and Madison, just head to forwardlookout.com. Brenda, we appreciate you taking the time to walk us through this week's calendar. 
Thanks, Faye. Alrighty. It's sort of fun seeing this from the other side. Usually I just get whatever Dylan sends me and I say, thank you. And I move on. Usually we're, we're rushing through it too. <laughs> Friday, February 16th, is the anniversary of one of the longest sit-down strikes in U.S. history. And the 1937 strike was not by male auto workers or even native-born workers. Instead, it was a group of Polish immigrants, mostly women, working at Detroit's six major tobacco processing factories. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. This Friday, February 16th, is the anniversary of one of the longest sit-down strikes in U.S. history. The year was 1937. It wasn't by male auto workers or even native-born workers. The sit-down was by 4,000 mostly Polish women cigar makers who closed down six Detroit cigar factories and one. The women worked long, grueling hours. I worked from 7 o'clock in the morning until 6 o'clock in the evening, recalled Helen Piłkowski, a hand wrapper in one of the older plants. It was hot, and you couldn't open the windows because you would dry up the stock. We were just cooped up, and don't forget, we ate where we worked, on the same benches. The four operators on each machine are paid on a piecework basis, 84 cents each 1,000 cigars. The strike committee at General Cigar complained. They average about $13 a week with the pay of all four depending on the speed of the slowest workers on the team. The wages, which had been cut 35 to 50 percent since the start of the Great Depression in 1929, were among the lowest in Detroit. Toxic tobacco dust was always in the air with ventilation poor to non-existent. The few available toilets were of a primitive type, or if modern, dirty, and often broken. The factory owners provided no soap or hot water. Sexual harassment from the foreman was routine. A citizen's fact-finding committee concluded that the workers have to work at terrific speeds, which affects them physically and mentally. They have become highly nervous and irritable, and at night they are so physically exhausted that a matter of recreation is prohibited. The women were inspired by the UAW auto plant sit-down strikes in Detroit and Flint. On February 16th, five days after the occupation of the General Motors plants in Flint, won union recognition for the UAW, workers at the Webston Eisenhower cigar factory sat down. They had put up a notice on the bulletin board in Polish telling the women to stay in. They had asked the management for a 10% raise but had been ignored. They stopped production, but needed help organizing the workers. The women had no union. The conservative, male-dominated, craft-based AFL Cigar Workers Union had ignored the women's repeated pleas for help. So they sent a delegation to the UAW headquarters to demand the Polish-born Stanley Nowak, head of the Polish Trade Union Committee, be their organizer. They knew Nowak from his weekly Polish radio program and his frequent appearance at Dom Polski, Polish House, the main cultural center of Polish, Polish Americans in Detroit. Poles in this period were the largest ethnic group in the city. The UAW, already spread thin, initially refused to let Nowak go, but reportedly gave in when the 25 women in the delegation threatened to sit down in the office of the Secretary Treasurer, George Addis. Within six hours, the women had formed an organization, 
There were committees for drawing up demands, providing food, bedding, and childcare, and establishing a strike headquarters. In a matter of days, the other five cigar companies, Mazer, Cressman, Essex Cigar, Bernard Schwartz, Teggy Jackson, and General Cigar were also occupied. They won the complete support of the whole neighborhood, said Nowak. Churches and priests supported it. Small businesses supported it. Polish newspapers supported it. Everyone was in sympathy with the women. During the strike, the men, husbands, fathers, brothers, and sons, all found themselves taking on jobs that were usually the women's responsibilities, like childcare, housework, and gaining support outside the plants. On February 19th, the strikers held a mass meeting at Dom Polski, which ended in a huge march, passing all six factories. By early March, Mazur, Cressman, and Essex had agreed to the women's demands, but the strikes at the other four plants continued. Mayor Frank Cozens ordered the police to break up the strike. The police violently dragged women out of the factories and injured several. The response was similar to that experienced by the Flint workers. The women's occupation of the plants had been largely peaceful. The UAW was quick to react, threatening an industry-wide strike if police brutality continued. UAW leader Victor Ruther announced his famous two-for-one plan, two new plan occupations for every one eviction of its strikers. This threat brought in Governor Frank Murphy. Murphy brought both sides together in his office at the end of April. An agreement was signed. The cigar industry conceded to the women's demands and a cigar union was established. On May 17, 1937, the Cigar Workers Union Local 24 became active and affiliated with the Congress of Industrial Organizations, CIO. And that is our story for today. For the past in the past, I'm Harry Richardson. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies on the small screen. Harry says Orion in the Dark, an animated feature, is more complex than it first seems. And he says The Greatest Night in Pop is an entertaining behind-the-scenes documentary. You really think you can fix everything I'm afraid of in one night? One night can change everything! Now, come on, everyone. We have work to do. And that was clipped from the trailer for Orion and the Dark, a fun, colorfully animated film with a heartfelt message directed by Sean Charmatz. It's based on a picture book of the same name by Emma Yarlett. The screenplay is by Charlie Kaufman, Lloyd Taylor, and Yarlett. Kaufman wrote and directed several films, among them being John Malkovich and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Of his movies, being as the best, all deal with existential dread, so it's only natural that he co-wrote this story of Orion, voiced by Jacob Tremblay. Orion is an 11-year-old boy who's afraid of everything, especially girls and bullies, but Orion's number one fear is the dark. Dark, a great Paul Walter Hauser, has finally had enough of his yelling and appears to Orion as a sentient being in a long dark cloak to convince him there is nothing to be afraid of. Dark is a good-natured guy who's frustrated with how many people see his job. He rolls out a list for Orion of people who are afraid of the dark and says this kind of brings him down. And that is only volume one. Orion seems to be on the top of his list. Dark convinces Orion to take a night trip with him and see the wonders that Dark enables. He also meets Dark's co-workers. Sleep, Natasha, Dimitru, Unexplained Noises, Golda Rashavel, Quiet, Aparna Nansharla, Insomnia, Nat Faxon, and Dark's favorite, Sweet Dreams. Angela Bassett. Later, we meet the irritatingly upbeat nemesis of Dark, Light, Ike Barinholtz. Dark makes some headway with Orion when we suddenly see our narrator is a grown-up Orion, Colin Hanks, talking to his little girl, Hypatia, Mia Akemi Brown, also afraid of the dark. So this becomes Hypatia's story as well. There are several clever twists and turns that make for a more complicated story than we had anticipated. There's also a fun cameo with director Werner Herzog and 
an amusing reference to David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. All in all, a fun movie, beautifully animated, imaginatively written for kids and adults. I highly recommend it. It just started streaming on Netflix. Up next, a very good documentary about a famous pop culture music event. That was clipped from the trailer for The Greatest Night in Pop, directed by Bao Win. It's a star-studded documentary on the making of We Are the World, which gathered 45 of the biggest music names in the U.S. in 1985 to raise funds for the starving people of Africa. The event was inspired by singer-activist Harry Belafonte, who was both impressed and perturbed by Do They Know It's Christmas, a single featuring a cast of British pop stars. The proceeds went to Ethiopian famine relief. Belafonte complained to to pop music manager Ken Cragen, we have white folks saving black folks, and we don't have black folks saving black folks. Cragen, back then, was representing many top U.S. musicians. He started with African Americans in the lead. He got Lionel Richie, the documentary's main talking head, to write the song with his longtime friend Michael Jackson, then at the height of his fame. Lionel kept trying to get Stevie Wonder on the phone, but Wonder was unavailable while the performance was being worked out at the studio. Cragen got producer-arranger Quincy Jones involved. The documentary shows us some fun backstage moments and some musicians nervous and excited to meet their heroes. There was also some wry humor with Paul Simon getting out one of the evening's best lines. If a bomb lands in this place, John Denver's back on top. Cragen and his staff of 50 had a tight schedule. They started making calls. This is long before computers and cell phones, just before Christmas. The deadline was January 28th, the night of the American Music Awards. Richie was the host of the show and also one of the night's biggest award winners. Cragen decided the best chance to get the musicians together was to pick an evening when many of them would be in town. He just had to convince them to join a recording session rather than go to an after party. There's a funny scene with Bob Dylan, Richie, Jones, and Wonder. There are also some fun present-day interviews with several singers involved that night. Especially enjoyable was Bruce Springsteen. Most importantly, We Are the World raised $80 million in famine relief. The event also inspired Live Aid, a multi venue performance which raised $140 million and Farm Aid, an annual concert to support family farmers which has raised $78 million over the years. A fun, entertaining documentary well worth your time. It just started playing on Netflix. For WT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporters were Jess Miller and WORT's news director, Shally Pittman. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson and Brenda Conkle. Thanks also to Nicholas Leet for technical production and Bill Kingsbury for web production. Victor Calzoni engineered this show, and Faith Parks produced this newscast. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a great night.
sorry, I totally forgot. <laughs> We've got Iris here, and um, uh, they're gonna do some. Uh, I'm just gonna speak like oh, everyone else. Uh, Iris is gonna. Uh, Iris is gonna speak. <laughs> 